We're going to read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. If you're visiting with us this morning, thank you. I'd like to say welcome to you particularly. It is the Lord's Day. He is alive. He is risen. He is not in the grave. And our God has spoken about this world in which we are making our way in. And that is the theme of our service this morning. This week we begin a five-week series, and it will be acknowledging the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. Some of you may be from backgrounds where it was your tradition to celebrate something called Reformation Day, uh, which is celebrated in other ways, in other cultures, on October 31. And But this is a significant year in it being the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther, 500 years ago, pounding his 95 thesis onto the door of the local cathedral in Wittenberg where he was a young uh, priest and lecturer uh, to deal with the penance or the uh, sacrament of penance, culminating four years later to Luther being brought before a trial put together by the empire, being accused by the church in Rome of being a heretic, and at the trial of King James himself, who gave a verdict that yes, Luther was indeed a heretic and he must recount all of his beliefs and burn all of his books to which Luther replied uh, in words that I, I don't have memorized, I'm sorry, I'm not a very good reformed guy I guess, but basically I call it show me religion. That's what, I, that's what I get out of it. It's like, if you can prove to me from the scriptures that this is what I should believe, then I will repent right now, but show me. And I hope that's the religion that you practice today. A show me religion. What does the scriptures say? God has spoken. And so Luther said, unless you can convince me from the Holy Scriptures, I will not recant. I cannot. So help me God. And so, a lot of it, a lot of the rest of it is history. There's uh, some phrases that have really helped me over the years to try to put some of these thoughts together and how those historical, this historical thinking helps me in the present. And it goes like this. You're going to know why I like this, because there's a lot of prepositions in it. And don't worry, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but would you please notice the prepositions? Uh, prepositions matter, and it's not the most important words here by any means, but, but prepositions distinguish. They, they distinguish purpose and means and instrumentality and source and object and, and all of those good things. And so uh, just take a moment and consider this, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. And so these are the, the five words, scripture, grace, faith, 
Christ and the glory of God that we are going to deal with in the next five weeks. And the significance, really more so, is in the word alone. That we are saved not by grace plus something, but it's grace alone. And that we are um, relying not on faith plus something, but faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. The significance of these ideas is that they are convictions that are vulnerable to drift. And that's why we're talking about them today, 500 years later. In other words, there are things that which we tend to add things, not because we're the church in Rome, because we're human, as the church in Rome was. And we add things. We add things to grace and faith and Christ and scriptures. We add things like works. We add things like tradition. We add things like our own default and our reflexes, like, like self-glorification instead of God-glorification. And so this series isn't intended as an indulgence in history, but rather a watchfulness for our own day. A real concern, not with the church in Rome, but with the Protestant evangelicalism of today, the churches that you and I attend, this church that you and I attend, that there would be a watchfulness over the things that we can drift from and that we always be reforming. Another little phrase that has helped me over the years from this, this, uh, this reformed thinking is that a reformed church is one that's always reforming. And church consultants will tell you that, that change is always good. In order for a church to keep up, you know, it's got to change. If you're not changing something every year, then there's something wrong with you. You've got to, you've got to constantly be changing. To which, to which I would agree that we are constantly drifting from what the scriptures actually say. And we constantly need to be changing in order to be more in line with what do the scriptures say. And so this simple text... From 2 Corinthians 3.16, all scripture. Wow. How much of scripture? All scripture. Not just some of it, not just the parts you like, not just the parts you agree with. All scripture is breathed out by God. That's in the ESV translation. You know that phrase in, in many different translations in the English, but this is the way that it is in the ESV. Breathed out by God. Wow. I mean, we take this for granted so much and, and just don't stop and, and think about it enough, perhaps. That there's, there's something in this world that is God-breathed. I remember as a, as a young man, this, this getting a hold of me. You know, I grew up in religion. It never really had much attraction to me. But when this concept began to be tickled in my mind that if there was something in this world that was God-breathed, then could there be anything else more important than to find out what it is? If the person who made this world has spoken about the world which he has made, then what greater endeavor is there in life but to know those words as I make my way in this world. It's God-breathed and it's profitable. Wow, you know, I, I'm a fan of understatement. <laughs> profitable, yeah, I would say it's profitable. It's God-breathed and it's profitable. In other words, do you, do you believe that? It's the question of the Christian life, isn't it? 
What else is going to bring us together? It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. This is the treasure the psalmist talks about. Oh, how I love your word. How I delight in your law. Above riches, above gold, above all else. So here's the main point that I would like you to take home with you today. It's pretty simple. I hope it's obvious that the Bible and the Bible alone, not the Bible plus anything, not the Bible plus our imagination, not plus our culture, not plus our institutions, not plus our traditions, but the Bible alone gives us the thoughts that are necessary. There are thoughts that are necessary. Not just deeds and actions, but deeds and actions that flow from thinking. Thinking that is necessary in order to have those deeds and, and have those actions that are without hypocrisy and without faking, but deeply, sincerely, because God has shown us how to place our faith in him, to be saved in Christ. And to live in righteousness. That, that's, that's all. That's, <laughs> that's what I want to inflict on you today. You know, they, I have lots of opinions which I would never try to inflict on anybody. But I have a few convictions. And that's the difference between an opinion and a conviction. A conviction you actually try to give away. Opinions you just, you just keep to yourself. I want to give this to you today. That the Bible and the Bible alone gives us the thoughts that are necessary for faith in God and Salvation in Christ and living in righteousness. You know, now I'm going to say something cynical. I'll tell, maybe I'll remember to tell you when it ends so that you, that you know. <laughs> the religion has this amazing capacity to make itself the end game. Ever feel that? That just, it seems like the institution itself, it's a great paradox, but the institution it, itself takes on a life of its own and begins to feed itself. And it's all done with the right vocabulary, but in really what, what the greater concern seems to be is for its own self and its growth and, and its popularity and its image. See, our, our goal isn't to be religious. I mean, if, if I didn't believe what I'm preaching about today, and I hope you would say the same thing about yourselves, that you wouldn't be sitting here today, and I certainly wouldn't be standing here. I'd be a million miles away from here doing something far, far different. If I didn't believe with all of my heart and soul that there is something in this world that is God-breathed and that is profitable. But our goal isn't to be religious. It's to, it's to grasp and experience something that, that transcends us. Wow, that is something God-breathed. Something that, that transcends us. Have you ever been around people that in, in a religious setting and had this sense and feeling that that there isn't the grasping of something that transcends them and the experience of something that, that is greater than what they've made up out of their own imagination and their own pride? It's awful. If you haven't experienced, I hope you never do. It's really awful. See, everything goes crazy if there isn't a definitive authority for, for such things. What transcends us? What is beyond us that is unseen and beyond our ability to control by our own power of imagining it? 
Everything goes crazy. Who am I going to listen to? What are you going to trust? Everybody asks these questions. Are you going to trust your reason? Are you going to trust your imagination? Your culture? Your newspaper? Your movies? Your talk show host? Your rock star? Tell you what, why don't we all just follow Mickey Mouse? Disney is probably the greatest shaper of culture in the Western world today. There is something that is God-breathed in this world. And Paul's words to Timothy are, are rooted in this very simple but important pastoral insight that we have an authoritative voice about how to live and think in this world from the one who made the world in which we're living and thinking. I mean, we're sentient rational beings who can't help but ask questions. We're very, very different than all the other creatures that God has made to swarm on the earth. We like to ride motorcycles, don't we? In all seriousness, we build combustion engines. That's a whole lot different than putting twigs together to sleep in. We're people who ask the questions, what in the world am I doing here? Who am I? And where did all this stuff come from anyway? At least, I don't know how people can keep from asking those questions. Where did it come from? Why is there something instead of nothing? What's wrong with the world and what is the solution? Who determines right and wrong? Where do I go when I die? Each of us is trusting some authority to the answer to each of those questions. Paul points out the obvious correlation between something that is God-breathed and its usefulness. I mean, the word profitable. I just focus on that again for a moment. It's the, the, the fulcrum word in the sentences, if sentences have fulcrums, I don't know. It's connecting the two. If it is something that is God-breathed, then what is its usefulness? And, and if it, we're going to be taught, then who is going to teach us? If I'm going to be taught, I want something that's a lot wiser than I am. I want something God-breathed. If I'm going to be reproved, who reproves you? Don't look around. Just eyes straight ahead. No nudging, winking. Who reproves you? Who do you trust to reprove you? Someone that you love? Someone that you trust deeply. Now you can look around. If I'm going to let something reprove me, if I'm going to entrust myself to something, then let it be God-breathed. Or let me just trust it to myself. If I'm going to be corrected, if I'm going to be trained in righteousness, then let it be something that knows a whole lot more about righteousness than I do. Profitable. Something God-breathed is profitable. Now, this isn't very complicated. I apologize if I'm making it complicated. It's just difficult, that's all. 
And it's contrary. It's contrary to autonomy, and it's contrary to intellectual relativism. Do you know what autonomy looks like? It's a self-governance. And it would gladly just take out that little word, all. And to say, well, I'll be the judge of what I think is true. I'll follow it when I think that it follows the paths that would bring me self-fulfillment. And it's no wonder God's people are fractured because this is the thing that people have, God's people have solidarity in. We believe there's something God-braced that we all trust in, all of it. So I'm not going to go through this verse anymore, explaining every word. They're pretty self-explanatory. You know what it means to be taught, to be reproved, to be trained. What I want to do now is I want to apply very briefly. I want to apply these words to the things that I personally believe that we are most vulnerable to competing voices in this world today. That's what I think exposition is. So I'm not going to air my exegesis of the text. I'm going to expound it in a way that I hope applies it. And what do we do with it? So what? What is it that we most need the scriptures to instruct us in? What is it that we most need reproof of our stubbornness? Where is it that we most need our foolishness corrected? Where is it that we are most uh, gone by the way in righteousness? And this is, what, this is what Christianity looks like. See, Christianity is a deliberation. It's a deliberate decision based on these convictions about the Word of God, about there being something God-breathed in this world. It's a deliberate putting of an authority over the competing voices. Because we all hear voices. And it's tough sometimes. And we need encouragement in it most of the time. And so these are things that I believe we need to deliberately choose to have the scriptures correct, instruct, reprove, train us in. Each of them are very broad categories. My intention isn't to explain any of them fully. My, my point is simply this, is to introduce them and say, we need to be instructed on this. We need to hear God's word on this. The first one is the nature of God. God is not who we imagine him to be. God is as he is. I think the most competing voice in this world when it comes to the nature and the character of God is our own imagination. And people will gravitate to their own imagination of what they think God would be like or should be like and they rebuff the scriptures. We need the scriptures to teach us to instruct us, to reprove us, to train us in this most critical question. What are you like, God? What are you like? I remember a man who brought me to faith in the Lord. I'd had a lot to do with religion and I never found it very compelling. And a man opened the scriptures who discipled me in, in, in the Lord. And he opened the Bible in a way that I'd never seen it open before. He opened it as a revelation of God. And I thought, wow, I've never heard that before. 
He says, it's not a moral handbook to show you how to live. It's first and foremost a revelation of the person that you're going to fall in love with. And the rest will be history in your life. The Bible is a revelation of an unseen reality that is a reality that permeates all things. And it is the definitive authority on what that unseen reality is like. Which God sent you? Go back, Moses. Tell them, I am sent you. We have this capacity to transpose our ideas onto an unseen reality and think that by doing so we control that unseen reality. I'll bet you're glad I don't have that power. No, I don't. Understanding God is a discovery. And it's discovered in the scriptures. It's for God to say who he is. I love being able to say that God is my God. To be able to say with a, cry out with a psalmist, my God, you are my God. But I've also heard that phrase used in a completely different way that deeply disturbs me. And it goes a little bit like this. Well, my God would, you finish the sentence. My God would never think like that. My God would never act like that. And I, I think that, wow, that, that's, that's really a wrong way to think about God being ours. Really? Your God? Where do you keep him? Maybe in your left pocket? We need the scriptures to rebuke, rebuke us and inform us. One of my favorite lines in all of, of the history of of. Christian spirituality that I've read, which is admittedly very little compared to what's out there, are the words of A.W. Tozer where he said this. He said, the most important thing about a person is what comes into their mind when they hear the word God. And I agree with that. The second thing is our human identity. There are many competing voices to identify and to help us to think about who we are. We need the scriptures to correct us, to teach us, to instruct us, to, to train us in who we are. Pride is probably the greatest voice out there in, 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 in helping us in the way that we think about ourselves, just pure human pride. But we also live in a culture that has the tremendous power to flatter that pride in us. And we need the scriptures to teach us. Just a few words of scripture resound through all of history. God made them. In his image, he made them. And then don't forget the next words, male and female. He created them. Incredible dignity to be made in the image of God. And yet we read in the scriptures that in, in Adam, we are a desperate people. We know this, right? We know the world we lived in. It's confused, and it's so desperately chaotic sometimes. But we learn more than that. We, more, we learn more than, well, there's just chaos everywhere. We, we learn this, that then in, in Adam, we're, we're not merely weak people in need of help, but we're actually dead people in need of life. It's a way of thinking about ourselves that we would never know if we didn't have the scriptures to, to teach us and to instruct us. If we didn't go to it looking for this very thing of the answer to the question, who am I? Imagine if we were left in this world to make up our identity from our surroundings. Imagine if you were left to think, well, my identity comes from how good I am at what I do or, or how much money I make or how long I live or anything like that. 
And God gives us this great privilege in the authority of Scripture, something that God breathed to transfer our identity completely and wholly and forever upon Him and upon His Son that He gives us His name and we are His. We wouldn't know that. Unless the Scripture taught us that. We are insecure people naturally. And insecurity creates defensive reflexes that make intimacy impossible. We desperately need the authority of scriptures to set us free in an identity in God. What is necessary for salvation? The next few weeks we'll focus on this a lot specifically, so I won't say much on it here, but this week I'll simply say that we we don't know what grace is without the scriptures. We don't know what faith is without the scriptures. We don't know what faith in Christ looks like except something God breathes tell us. It's what keeps us from building our life on the sand. And when the storms of life come, it just washes away. And so I'm really looking forward to these next few weeks. I'm really glad that, that Pastor Paul gives us this opportunity to, to spend these weeks in this subject. But let me ask you, do you know what is necessary for salvation? Do you know the answer to that question? And over these next few weeks, we're going to be emphasizing that that word alone in grace and in Christ and in scriptures, and, but for also for the glory of God alone. We'll try to put it all together and help you give, confidently understand, yes, this is what it means to be saved. The proper evidences of salvation, I think, are something also that we critically need the authority of scripture to teach us. There's a lot of division in the church today. What does a Christian look like? What are the boundaries? What does obedience look like? What does it look like to belong to God? Well, we need something God-breathed. What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Isn't there irony there, isn't there, of looking to be filled with the Spirit without looking to the Spirit-filled Word that God has given us? What does it look like to pray? What does it look like to suffer? What does it look like to have possessions and money? What does it look like to have desires in this world? The Scriptures alone show us the way. His Word is a lamp for our feet. And here is where we trust God with our lives. I do this over and over again. Lord, I'm going to look like a fool. People are going to laugh at me. People are going to mock me. They might even harm me. Will I be put to shame if I trust in your word? I've asked myself that question over and over and over again. Will I trust you? Will I defer to your wisdom? Do you know more than I do? Do you have my best interests in mind? Or will I defer to my own understanding? 
to my own wisdom? Will I trust my own instincts better? How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. One of the many verses in Psalm 119. And finally, the the eternal state. What do you know about the eternal state? We need something God breathed to teach us, to instruct us, to reprove our imaginations, our dislikes, our are sniffing at things that we don't think they should be that way and to train us in righteousness when it comes to our thinking about the eternal state there's a lot of lot of voices out there i've been to a lot of funerals in parksville and the consensus seems to be that it's either a playland where they're just doing whatever they like to do or there's nothing And what we think about the future has a large bearing on what we do in the present. So we need something God-breathed to teach us what the future holds, to reprove our unbelief, to correct our assumptions and our opinions of what we think should happen in the eternal state. Our Lord says that all the dead shall rise, the righteous to eternal life, and the wicked to condemnation. That's not my idea. It's a God-breathed idea. God has spoken. Hallelujah. We serve a, a living, speaking God. And his words are profitable for living our lives together. And you know what? It's what gives you and me solidarity. Lord, forgive the Protestants. 500 years later, there's about a thousand different organizations that can't agree on, any, on anything. Makes you want to go back to Rome. No, it doesn't at all. But, <laughs> Lord, help us to be unified on the things that need to unify us and to be divided on the things that need to divide us. But this is where God's people have solidarity. We are God's sheep and the single most important quality of a sheep, Jesus says in John chapter 10, is that they recognize the voice of their master and obey his voice. So that's where we start this week. A scripture alone. God help us to to understand it and to apply it. Let's pray. Lord, gracious God, help us to marvel Give us joy, I pray. Give us rejoicing in things that are so beyond our ability to manipulate or control. We couldn't make you speak if we wanted to. And you have. Lord, unite us, I pray. Lord, unite us together in your word and all that it is God breathed towards us for our help, our strength, our encouragement, but most of all, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.